Welcome back, everybody. This week, I'm changing it up a little bit. You know, we go through romantic relationship content. And, you know, as you guys know from, if you don't follow me on Instagram, you should create the love. Yo, get up on it. But as you know, if you do follow me, that I talk a lot about that concept of, you know, how we do one thing is how we do everything. And then, of course, in the workplace, how we handle relationships, conflict, all those things is so important. And this podcast is not only going to be focused on romantic relationships, it's going to be taking in all sorts of relationships and how we communicate and how we become the best communicator, but also how we connect to other human beings, not just in the context of romantic relationship. That's just where the magnifying glass really hits, right? You know, it magnifies all the stuff we're not so good at. But man, at work, that can happen too. And we can be falling into patterns at work. So this week, I wanted to interview a very good friend of mine. He's spoken on stage with me a couple of times. He spoke at my conference, Masters of the Universe Summit. His name is Matt Corker. He is an unbelievable human being, very insightful in the area of business and leadership and management. And I can't wait for you guys to hear the insights he shares with this. I mean, I can't wait to have him back on to really navigate his personal life and all the things he's been through because that's a whole other adventure. And this week, we're going to be crushing the subject of business, management, leadership, and HR stuff. Man, it's going to be amazing. It's a long time awaited for this podcast with my my good friend, Matt Corker. So long awaited, but so enjoyable already. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you here. I was just asking Matt before I hit record here, like, what exactly, what's your title? It's like, I'm CEO of Corker Co. and uh, head of poetry. I teach people, I do what? I teach people how to deal with other people. And let me tell you, this guy is good at dealing with people. That is, <laughs> you are a magician of the human experience. Hey, that's I, true. I appreciate that. That's, that's big words coming from the man who teaches people how to love. And I think the interesting thing is like, so my sister, Steph Corker, started the company and she and I initially, the first business that we ever started together, well, actually the first two businesses we started together were dating companies. I remember that. It was like an, uh, you were setting people up or something, yeah, right? Yeah. So the first one was Nomo Solo. So you could be solo Nomo. <laughs> That's so good. And we wanted people to have offline experiences that connected each other. And we realized that that wasn't actually a cool business. It was just a cool idea. <laughs> that happens, right? <laughs> yeah. Cool ideas, not... Yeah, no not capital <laughs> yeah. would be exchanged. You won't retire from this idea. Yeah, not proprietary at all. <laughs> and then our second business was called Coconut. And we said, put up your hand via an online survey to say, please set me up with someone. And then we would introduce two people that we thought would be really rad to connect with. I remember this one. Yeah, that's actually, I think when I was like, that's when I at least observed the conversation because that yeah. one went more public. That yeah. was like, that was a bigger deal. And what was interesting is what we, we actually had to stop the business when and I think it was the moment I knew we had to like terminate was <laughs> when what we set up this couple and we introduced people via email with a little like, here's why we think you would be great together. And um, it was a man and a woman and the woman wrote back. She's like, thanks so much for setting me up with my ex-husband. <laughs> no way. <laughs> I was like, okay, so we're good at our job at matching people. <laughs> Yet, maybe our background checks to be a little bit more substantial. That is kind of amazing, though. Right? That you set up an ex, which I'm sure made them think about their choice. Well, they and they had just recently separated as well. So it wasn't like, oh, this is five years ago. It was like, oh, we just recently separated and we're now back on the market. This is like the first person. Are they back together? You know, I didn't follow up. We need a follow-up on that one. Yeah, that we'll dig through the archives. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Stay tuned. Podcast number two. Frick, man. That's what a, happened to that couple? <laughs> what happened to the couple? We'll have them on. This will be a whole train. I can't wait. I'm excited. So, because I also get your mail, your email, mm -hmm. not your actual mail. He doesn't do mail outs. He's more advanced. But he, I get their email. And you guys always give such great advice about how to, well, obviously deal with people and manage people and what's going on in the current trends in business and all that jazz. 
So how do you stay up on that stuff? Well, what's fascinating is what that, do you see happening? Yeah, I see that there's a huge shift in the world of leadership development. And my passion and background has always been in leadership development. The first book that I ever remember reading was The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens. Oh, you went oh. with the teens. Oh, yeah. Like I was, you were obviously a developed teenager. I, I met that book at 27, I think, <laughs> but not the teen one. That would have been weird. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, it had animate, like not animations, but like cartoons in it. And I would, I think I was 10 years old and I would stay up. What? I know I'm like that kid who would like highlight and tab <laughs> this book. Wow. So I've always been fascinated with leadership development yet as I developed in my career, really noticed the, the big gap that we're experiencing right now is manager training and like mm. really how to manage people, not just lead people. And management training has really been given like this stingy or um, like people turn up their nose. Like being a manager is one thing, but a leader is another thing. And I'm <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, true. like everyone can like, be a leader. Plays when you say that. <laughs> yeah, totally. And then now all the research out there, or even just like colloquial, you'll hear people don't quit their jobs. They quit their manager. Ooh. And yeah. they don't say I quit my leader. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely true. You know? So the manager gets blame for everything. No one gets excited about manager training. Yeah. That's interesting. And so our commitment um, and what we get really excited about is how do we, A, recruit for really great people managers to make sure people go into really fulfilling roles and how do we develop the internal capacity of people managers or in this case, project managers or people who are responsible for managing tasks and activities of others. Well, I find too, like to, to just dive a little deeper in that part, I find, you know, I obviously, I don't believe that there's a such thing as work-life balance. You know, you sort of like Agreed. have what's in your life and then it either gives you energy or it doesn't, yeah. you know, relationally, or you can't like go through shit at work and come home and be fine. Yeah. Just like you can't be going through a breakup and expect to be like showing up as the most productive employee. I think that's such, yeah. uh, that's just ignorant and yeah. bullshit. And when when I, I right now there seems to be such an up and coming rise or continuation, I guess, of entrepreneurship. But then there's still companies and there's entrepreneurs that need employees, and so I, I feel like there's a lack of um, um, outward uh, observation of like sexiness to being an employee. Mm -hmm. But I think you can be completely fulfilled and not have to run your own company and not. So like in that context, how does someone who's like, am I in my purpose? How do I find joy in my career? Like how do companies create that for employees? Well, I good question. I think from my perspective is really allowing people to do the work that they're most passionate about and the most skilled at. And so the interesting thing is that organizations, managers can develop skills I can develop your Excel skills. I can develop your presentation skills. Yet <clears throat> if you hate working in Excel and if you hate giving hate. public presentations, it doesn't matter how much training <laughs> I true. give you. Yeah. Like, you can't out-train my hate yeah. in Excel. That's an accurate example. <laughs> I actually, this would be an interesting thing. So I l am so good at Excel. Like I could... It spend hours in Excel doing pivot tables and analyzing financial statements. Like I am good at it. And if that was my full-time job, I would go crazy. I couldn't imagine. <laughs> so it's the difference between, am I playing in my strengths, things that I'm good at and passionate about, or am I playing in my weaknesses, things that make me feel weak, things mm -hmm. that I put off to the very end of my to-do list, things that I delegate to someone else to be like, please, please, please take this off my plate. And I think when people managers I, are able to help their team identify their strengths and their talents and their weaknesses, they're able to divide work out more accurately and in a way that actually keeps the commitment level of their team high. Mm, so it's like uh, delegating the work to people who will find that work fulfilling. Totally. It, 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 and the companies that you guys work with, 
what size do they, I mean, you work with actually giant companies. We work with pretty big companies and here in Vancouver, it's like such a spread too, because, you know, I just came from a meeting with a biotech company. So we like toured the lab as part of the office tour. Those people must, they love like little, uh, tinctures and like drops and detail oriented work. Yeah. I would die. Yeah. So like a slew of introverts. (laughs) Totally. That's true. (laughs) And then we work with like different retailers where they have a slew of extroverts on their team where they're like, let me talk to more people. And it's really fascinating to see a, that there's not one correct way to be a leader. There's not one correct way of being a manager. There's just different tools and techniques that can be applied in different situations. Would you consider a manager and a leader to be um, like, what's the difference between those two? I think that there's a, there's a blend because to manage a project, I would need to be um, organizing tasks and activities and people Yeah, to lead a project would be future focused and creating um, the vision and the overarching purpose of that project. For example, However, being a people manager requires you to both manage and lead. So I think the title title of a people manager, people often disregard and they're like, oh, you're just a a manager. A mid-level. Yeah. The the gross word, (laughs) a mid-level manager. Yeah, totally. Makes it feel like we're talking about a financial institution, right? Like I'm just like, oh. Yeah. But the reality is it's like as soon as we are responsible for the success of a department, a success of a cross-functional project, then I need to act as both a manager and as a leader. And my title just has manager in it versus leader in it. So what is the, because I'm sure for many people listening, they both manage homes and manage uh, workplaces. How do you step into both spaces? Because if you're taking it by the narrative that we have about managers, right, yeah. is that they're like, you know, they're not seen with the same glorification as yeah. like the person who gives the speech, right? At yeah. all the, I used to be a pharmaceutical rep, as you know, and I remember at the national meetings, it was like freaking Ed Sheeran was about to come on stage and it was, <laughs> and I was like, oh, it's Francois. And it's like a guy from France coming to do a talk. And everyone goes nuts. And it's like, give me an inspirational speech. But yeah. like, the, the, like, here's the thing. The keynote that you hire for your company offsite that gives a great, inspiring one-hour converse, like talk to you isn't actually going to help you do any of the work. <laughs> That's true. It's really inspirational. But when they leave, you so still have the same culture. <laughs> you still have the same tr- challenges. Yeah. And so for me, you know, going back to your original question, I think of somehow we've got it in our brains that as soon as I walk through one door, then I have to be a different human. Mm-hmm. When I walk into my home, I have to be a different human. When I walk into the office, I have to be a different human. And the reality is we're the same human and we may just have to host different conversations. Mm, I like that distinction because you're right. You know, uh, I think we've been socialized, especially from watching our previous generations Mm -hmm. of like dad comes home and all the kids rush to dad, you know, but dad at work is like serious Actually, at home, dads are usually pretty serious, too. But you know, like that we have to wear these different masks or play these different roles. And so is that essentially speaking to the necessity for authenticity in a leadership role or a management role? Well, I think it actually calls upon a lot of different things because the old narrative is that dad comes home and today mom comes home. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, true. Or they come home, right? Like Like, it's so different. And so all of a sudden what we consider to be like the correct way to operate is being challenged on a number of different relationally, gender, sexuality. I mean, all of it is, it's free. It's a free, it's an open space, an open canvas for us to, so is the workplace, if I'm getting what you're, if I'm picking up what you're putting down, the workplace in more newer, more open workplaces because I'm thinking of like a pharma company or like a financial company, they don't tend to be like uh, culturally flexible places. Mm -hmm. I'm generalizing, of course. But are newer workplaces then experiencing that same sort of uh, social pressure that life is experiencing, where it's like, 
you know, where you can be authentic in your workplace, but can you be expressive in the same way that we want to be expressive in our personal lives? Yeah. I think there's some, a beautiful tension between self-expression and workability. Explain that. What do you mean? Okay. So self-expression. Sounds poetic. I love it already, but I just (laughs) want to understand it more. So self-expression to me is like, I can do anything I want. I can be whoever I want. I can um, show up exactly as I want to. Perfect. Yes. Like rah, rah. I'm me. I'm me. Take it or leave it. Yeah. And workability comes into play as soon as we're in relationship with someone else. So what works for our friendship? What works Mm. for my relationship? What works with my parents? What works for my company? All of a sudden, there's communal agreements or standards or rules of play. Like I can't play soccer the way that I want to play soccer necessarily. Mm -hmm. There are rules to that game. Yeah, I see what you mean. And so at the workplace, I actually think that there's an interesting dynamic between bring your full self to work and allow it to fit into the standards and rules of play here at this location. And the ideal situation is that the way I want to operate my life matches the standards at play at work. Yeah, that would be perfect. That would be ideal. And it happens all the time. And what we also hear is I can't be myself at work because I have to pretend to like smoking cigarettes because I work at a cigarette company. Oh you know? God. Yeah. That'd be so, I had a friend who used to be a rep for a cigarette company really? like in college and it was so hard. Like I mean, none of us were smokers, Yeah, but it was like such a weird, cause it felt even actually as a pharma rep, yeah. it eventually became like, I couldn't be in the role anymore because it was like my desire for self-expression that was aligned in all facets of my life. I couldn't have these like little pockets where integrity was not where I was allowed to be out of what I was defining as integrity. Yeah. And I was like, I just can't do this anymore. And so it's interesting to think of um, even workplaces having maybe more space for self-expression, especially in more modern workplaces like tech companies where you can go play ping pong and, I know a girl who works for a company that has unlimited vacation. Yeah. What the fuck? Well, did this happen? Crazy thing. I used to manage a team and we had, and at the corporate co, we don't really like have vacation hours. It's just like, go live your life and be productive according to like our monthly. Go use your laptop in New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. And if anything, people took less vacation when you gave them unlimited vacation. Really? Well, because I'm not working with people that are poor performers. Like the goals are clearly outlined. They know their level of responsibility toward those goals and no one ever abused the system. So my experience with unlimited vacation is like game on. It's so great. And I'm sure that if you work in an organization where there's lying and background conversations and Mm -hmm. like people abusing the system in general, well, yeah, like people are going to abuse. Unlimited vacation will mean they will never come back. That will be like... I'm going on vacation. When are you ever, forever? Yeah. You said it could. Yeah. But I think the interesting thing in terms of like that balance between workability and self-expression probably shows up in the work you do with couples. And like when you're talking to people about like, should I break up with this person? Should I not? What, like, when do I say enough is enough? Yeah. Being able to understand what's yours, what's theirs, what are their rules of engagement? What are your rules of engagement? You know, and that's, I mean, in your dating in coconut, you were really trying to merge with, I guess, you know, on some level you thought were the most compatible lenses of the world. Yeah. Ironically, ex-wife and ex-husband, but you know, I, I, you know, and and I guess I, I don't need this to be all focused on workplace, mm-hmm. but I think for a lot of people that becomes, you know, it's like great to understand, oh yeah, romantically, I'm learning how to communicate. I'm learning, but man, as someone who worked in the workplace and taught communication, the dysfunction in the workplace is so similar, you know? This, oh yeah. Yeah. Like <laughs> how you handle conflict in a romantic relationship is you're just a, generally allowed to be more dysfunctional. 
but you're still, we're still dysfunctional. It's not like all of a sudden we're amazing at work and we get home and we just happen to throw all that shit out the door. Well, what's fascinating to me is when I think about, okay, if I'm at home and I'm having a confrontation with my partner, like yeah. I don't get to like call HR to be like, <laughs> can you help mediate this conversation? Yeah. But somehow when I step through the door called the office, all of a sudden I can be like, I need to talk to someone else's boss or like, I need a third party. I'm like, this isn't how humans function, <laughs> but we've created systems and cultures mm. that allow like middlemen to take shape or take the responsibility from us in having meaningful conversations, conversations where the stakes are high, yet we still care about the other person conversations that may challenge our core beliefs or our mm. approaches on a situation. Yet we do that. We may not actually do that in our personal lives and it shows up at work too. Why do you think we can do that at work sometimes? Yeah. But not at home. Well, good question. Right? Like I, I do definitely think, you know, there's some interesting research on um, willpower and how when we go through our day, that willpower gets depleted. And then I, I don't know if you've ever seen that research where it's like uh, people who have their crimes all normalized and then they go to a judge to try to get uh, you know, pardoned, uh, parole. And if you see the judge first, your chances of parole up until 1030 are like 60%. But after you get closer to lunch and the judge, is, he or she is getting hangry, it goes way down and then it goes up after lunch again. And by the time we get home, you know, you like walk in the door and partners usually want to like have a conversation and get it. But there's not any like, you know, I guess I suppose in some ways we save the best parts of us for work often. Mm -hmm. Well, I also think that this, that's poor energy management. Yes. Because just in that example, First thing in the day, coming in bright and early, I'm probably well-fed or well-rested. And then it gets to a point where our brains actually can't function anymore. And we have to eat or we have to move or we have mm -hmm. to get up out of our desk and do something different. And then we're back to a high-functioning adult. <laughs> and then we go through the rest of the day. And instead of eating and moving and doing something that would be good for our body, we get into a car or sit on a bus and get, on, get our way home. And so when we walk through the door, we're tired, we're hungry, we want to move our body. And our the most important person in our lives is probably at home with us. Yeah. And they get the short end of the stick. And the most the mo the one who can who seemingly is sort of signed up for uh the most I don't know, gritty parts of us. Yeah. What does my girlfriend say when I'm getting she says I'm getting crunchy. Crunchy. <laughs> you're crunchy right now. Do you need a a protein bar or something and yeah. i'm like yeah actually i do that's true but i think it's it's interesting that there is almost like more emotional resilience where we know the the cost of like being emotionally explosive at work mm -hmm. has a much higher cost generally yeah. speaking yeah. um versus at home you know i think in a lot of ways we think marriage or a relationship, a commitment mm -hmm. is a bit of a prison mm -hmm. in that it's like, I get to be this way with you because you signed a contract now. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, I had someone comment on something yesterday on my Instagram saying like, you don't emphasize how marriage has to be a commitment. So people will stay and fight for things. And I was like, I'm not saying that you shouldn't stay and fight for things. I'm saying no, that your partner can leave you in any moment. Yeah. And that is the reason you have to actually do the work. Yeah. Like acknowledge the truth. The truth is your partner can divorce you in any moment yeah. and leave you in any moment. Like thinking any different is just ignorant. Yeah. And the interesting thing is when I look at it from a corporate perspective, it's like your boss can fire you tomorrow. Yes, there's legal action and it may get complicated and messy, but guess what? your partner can also leave you tomorrow yeah. and they're going to be legal action and it's going to get messy. And like, <laughs> it's the same deal. Both are expensive choices. And both are expensive. One, you probably are going to lose a lot of, actually both of you, you're, you're going to lose, lose a lot of money. <laughs> a lot of emotional energy though, that yeah. you could literally just put your ego to the side and go learn yeah. more. 
go learn how to be, you know, because you train, you guys do management training yeah. and leadership training. So management leadership training, <laughs> similar. And this, is it differently constructed depending on the level of uh, the role? We uh, have a program that is called the manager start line. And we designed it initially for entry-level managers, new, new managers. And what we discovered is, oh, wait, no one's ever been trained to be a manager. <laughs> and so we have executives and, and people in senior leadership roles who kind of like quietly to the side be like, can I also take this program? <laughs> We're like, yes. So yes, you should. Yeah. Most people should learn how to be a people manager if that's in their goals or if that's their actual job responsibility. So in, in almost all the companies go to where there are management that you are newly training, yeah. most of the established managers have not taken an actual course. Course or anything. That is insane. Yeah. And we usually emulate... <laughs> Like it's like to me, I'm like that's mind blowing. Well, people but from an investment perspective, why wouldn't every company invest? Well, it's difficult to create. Everyone thinks they're a special snowflake, and their corporate culture is yeah, unique. And I'm sure you see it in relationships where it's like, no, no, but I have something special and unique with my partner, and you're like, Duh. actually, it's the same. Actually, your dysfunctions are the same, and your deliciousness is the same for the most part. Yeah, and so there's commonalities that I think. I'll be biased. I think HR teams hold cu culture as like this special uniqueness. And if you step out of the world of HR and look at different department leaders, they're like, we're the same. Like hmm. if I lead product for Nike and then I go lead product for Arterix, they're like same, dis like same dysfunctions arise, same complications, same type of environment is present. Is that true in your experience too? I would say that there's more commonalities between companies than differences when it comes to managing and being with people and the dysfunctions within yeah. people. I know when I do um, sales training and training, like relational training at businesses, I find fascinating is like all the stuff that is in uh, the relationship research with like John Gottman and like the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which for anyone listening, if you don't, that, that devastating term <laughs> is, is actually meeting its devastation of research which is there are four things that are evident in all relationships that end up in divorce. They're evident in all relationships. They're just in much higher quantity in relationships that end up in divorce. And the Gottmans, if they listen to three minutes of someone's conversation can predict with over 80% accuracy if you'll divorce. Like that's insanity. But it tells you how much, because that's also evident in the workplace of yeah. how much positivity there is, how much, um, um, and if the, the four horsemen, which are what? Criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, which is like shutting down, withdrawing, and contempt, eye rolling. Mm. Eye rolling is the most predictive behavior of divorce, which is crazy. Which makes sense because what it's actually communicating is I have something to say. I disagree or think you're stupid yeah. and I'm not going to say anything. Totally. It's so like, it's so condescending and contem it's contemptuous, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's like hierarchical in, in a, in a sense in, in workplaces. I mean, it, just I, I didn't know that there weren't like some level of management training for managers that just seems but I also when I think about humans in relationships that are romantic no one's had any training and all our training came from observing our parents which are like our mid-level <laughs> managers yeah you know who observe their parents who observe exactly. it's the same shit human same. systems are human systems yes and that's why if you can master yourself I mean you'll fucking thrive you'll fucking thrive yeah but this is the interesting thing mm. so a lot of self, a lot of self development and a lot of leadership is about being able to lead yourself, know yourself, et cetera. Yeah. And then what I argue is it's awesome that you can sit on your meditation cushion and meditate for 20 minutes a day, but it's in, cool. in the world, your house is burning down. So get off the, the freaking meditation cushion and go put out a fire. Yeah. I hear you. Like, it's great that you can be quiet and sit and chill, but who are you when you're facing rejection? Yeah. Who are you when your business is fucking on fire? Yeah. What happens when you catch your um, staff member watching pornography on their computer at work? Does that happen? I just was in a workshop today and I was like, give me an example of a time that it was like difficult to give feedback. And he's like, I caught one of my employees watching pornography. I was like, in my four years of leading this particular workshop, I've never received that as the example. I was like, I am going to use that. <laughs> like, wow. They're like, 
polar side. That is bold. It's, I'm just like, it was flabbergasted. I was flabbergasted first that that happened. And second, that the person didn't get fired. They didn't get <laughs> they fired. didn't get fired. But I suppose they could just plead self-expression. <laughs> See, and this is where it doesn't work. Like, I want to do whatever I want <laughs> yeah. at work. No, no. It's, it goes against the standards and policies of play. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. That's yeah. the meeting of two worlds that do not meet together. Yeah. You have to adjust yourself. Unless you work at a porn company and you're editing videos. <laughs> you're product testing. You know? Right? So it's like... That's a good place to get a job if you want to watch porn at work. Yeah. So, like, there's... Uh, this is why I'm like, it's not black and white. It's not a one-size-fit-all. Oh no. But... At the same time, context is everything. So in the, in the context of management, yeah. what are the things that when you go in and they've not had a training program, what are the areas that you notice that people who manage people are struggling the most? Like what is the spot that almost all of us, if you didn't know any of us, you could predict we likely struggle with? How to take full responsibility when you're also holding other people accountable. Explain that more. So as a manager, I'm responsible for my team's performance and hosting conversations that allow their performance to excel. And if someone came up and was like, your team didn't do X, the first thing that I could do is be like, oh yeah, well, Mark didn't do this. And I would essentially be throwing you under the bus Mm -hmm. instead of being like, you know what? I can own that. And I didn't host the correct conversation for my team member to be successful. And it's like not, and it's this balance between how do I be fully responsible? My job is to make sure my team's successful. My team isn't successful. It's on me. I'm not doing my job. And then also being the one to host the conversation, to give feedback in a way that allows both parties to look and be like, how am I a hundred percent responsible for what occurred? Wow. And that so, is like separating, holding a space of humility and responsibility in the same, yeah. that your self-worth is not attached to that, but also that you can then transfer that conversation down to the person. So you know that you missed something. Yeah. That's the evidence of essentially most team breakdowns. Yeah. And I would say that this is where managers place blame and guilt and vague feedback or passive aggressive communication this like all of those things i would say they all stem from a lack of personal responsibility on the manager side i mean having worked with uh, a lot of managers as my manager when Mm -hmm. i was in corporate it's interesting to think actually how many of them uh, my direct managers were all pretty pretty awesome but what was interesting and I hope this person's listening, is that the most dysfunctional fucking person in the company, a couple of them, were the ones that got promoted fast. And I was just like, this person is like toxic, is all about themselves, is, and you know, I get a lot of um, messages on Instagram and via email about how to deal with a toxic boss Mm -hmm. or like, what happens if my boss is a narcissist and blah, 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 blah. Quit, go to another job. Seriously, horrible bosses don't deserve to work with great people. So if you're a great person, stop giving your horrible boss the value that you create in the world. Go somewhere else. See, I love that kind of advice. Like no fucking around. Yeah. Like go find a place where you're celebrated. Yeah. That's like staying in a relationship where you're not feeling valued, where you keep trying to push a big rock up a big hill. You're not meant to push big rocks up big hills unless that's your job. But that's, that's actually a job, which that would, I would never survive. Not in your strengths. No, I once worked at a golf course at a labor job where I had to like mow lawns and fucking dig holes. (laughs) I was late every day. One month, you know, I knew I wasn't good at it. Yeah. I didn't want to be good at it. I think that's an important thing to know about yourself. Yeah, totally. But yeah, I would argue that that's your weakness. That we, it yeah. makes you feel weak. You're it, like, I don't like showing up to this I was job. like, this is horrible. Don't get Mark Rose to dig holes. Yeah. No. But it, I think that that's such a, because for so many people, it's this desire to want, well, first off, most of the people who end up with toxic bosses like that have a history of taking everything and making it about them, not in an arrogant way, but I mean, in the sense that it's like, it's because I'm a low performer. It's because I'm not doing a good job. It's not like, it's a classic. They probably date people who are similar. Yeah. 
you know, in some sense. Totally. And the interesting thing about what you just described of people who are poor performers or toxic to the communication culture get promoted. And what often happens for me is that is what reinforces what values and leadership um, practices are um, rewarded in the company. So I don't care what your leadership development curriculum is. I don't care what the values you put on the wall are. Uh Tell me who you recently promoted and recently fired and who were they and why did they matter um, to the organization? Because if you fire someone that people are like, that person was a rock star performer and a core cultural champion, then that sends a message to the rest of the company being like, well, what are our cultural tenants then? What Uh like if this great performer just got fired, like, do I have to slack off then? Because this toxic person who doesn't actually perform well actually got promoted. So do I have to act more like that in order to get promoted? Wow. What an interesting audit to do for a company. Mm-hmm. Like I instantly think of old companies where I'm like, yeah, there's some like the actual core. And I find like, you know, relationships or systems, like you know, families and, and romantic relationships and friendships they all have a culture, you know, they have a shared agreements. We have shared ideas of how we're, as you were saying before, where self-expression meets uh, workability. workability. And I think about the sort of like underlying culture that a couple pretends to live by, but then like, what are they really like in private? What are the Mm. conversations like when things are hard, when things Mm. are heavy, when things, and I think about that with companies, that was something that I always sort of, because I could only really, my own experience at the time was my own company and I could see that what was going on, what the outward expression of our our corporate culture was, the principles of the company, the mission, the all the buzzword mission and vision values. Vision values. I got buzzwords for days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. the conversations by the coffee machine yeah. were very different. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, whenever you have space between who you say you are or what company represents and what they actually truly are doing. Mm -hmm. I think there's so much dysfunction that lives in that space. If it's a big gap, I mean, I think Mm -hmm. all things are fluctuating and all things are, you know, authenticity is a constantly moving sort of target, but when companies don't embody what they say, it just, to me, and I'm more inquiring here, it creates such a toxic work environment. Well, I think the interesting thing is that it, I wouldn't say it's like one or the other. Uh, And Dan Savage actually shaped my view on this. Love him so much. He said that human sexuality um, is comprised of three things. Who you sleep with, who you want to sleep with, and who you say you sleep with. (laughs) And I really liked that because I was like, okay, who I sleep with, who I want to be sleeping with, and who I say I sleep with could actually be three different things. completely, especially if, you know, depending on all the motivating factors, all the shame factors, all the systemic factors. Yeah. I mean, and so then I look, okay, well, if that exists in human relationships in the world of sex and love, well, what happens to corporate human systems where, okay, who do we say we are? Who do we actually want to be? And then who do we tell people we are. Mm. And those three things may be different, but they all comprise your corporate culture. So part of your culture may be actually a lack of integrity. Mm. Corporate culture may actually be competitiveness rather than collaboration. And that's okay. It works for certain organizations. The competitiveness. Yeah. A lack or like, of integrity. Lack of integrity. Well, it does work yeah. usually because it gets rewarded. Yeah. So it like... It's this is where I try to take off the judgment of factors Mm. where it's not good or bad. It just like, does it work? Does it create the results that you're looking for? And in some cases it does. And in other cases it may not. And that's okay. Yeah. And I feel like where capitalism really drives like values, you know, in some sense or the lack thereof in some ways it's interesting as more pressure builds on companies that, you know, you were talking about the shifting landscape of humanity and the shifting landscape of what we expect from companies and what we expect from, you know, how they show up. And I I think it's interesting to me in a workplace that 
we don't teach love, Mm -hmm. you know, and that I did did a workshop with a company where uh, it was a hundred employees and what a progressive, such an amazing company was in Calgary. And the, it was so interesting to talk about relationships and people's like, you know, family systems, their past, which is different when someone comes to a workshop that I put on, they're like, I'm going to see Mark Groves. I expect da, 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 da. I'm going to a workshop with my company. This Mark Groves guy is coming. Yeah. Oh shit. Right. Like it's, yeah. And I was talking to a friend of mine who uh, runs a company in DC in Washington, DC. And I was like, do I need to sort of like um, filter or like edge a little bit? And he's like, well, no, because the two people you make uncomfortable in that room, you don't give everyone else who needs what you're teaching their full experience. And I thought, that's true. Like, you know, I guess with everything in self-expression and in work, like you didn't go into your work to kind of half do your work, you know, you know, to make people feel safe about being a shitty manager. Yeah. Right. Like if you were like, (laughs) I'm going to make some people in this room uncomfortable, I better not make anyone uncomfortable. Yeah. And I realized that that's, we have to be so much more committed to what our deeper work is, what our deeper passion is, what Mm -hmm. our deeper goal, what our why is. Mm -hmm. And why do you think it is that companies, I mean, you work with such a wide range of types of companies, mm-hmm. don't want to talk about um, not just romantic love, but personal relationships. You know, in the wake of Me Too, we shouldn't not be talking about it. Amen. We should be fucking teaching it. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is that, um, you know, if you take a purely capitalist lens, the reason corporations exist is to make money. And the, on the spectrum of what training is going to allow our people to be more effective in their job, they tend to vote for the Excel training, right? (laughs) Like you use Excel, let's make you more efficient at Excel. And they forget that there's actually a heartbeat using Like a finger clicking that is attached to a productive human if the human is in thriving relationship. Yeah. And what I would argue is in some cases, I would agree, invest in Excel training. Mm-hmm. Yet as the changing landscape occurs and we're seeing more automation of things that don't require human intellect, we're able to then focus on, okay, well then how do we as humans interact? Because now I'm not just in front of a computer screen interacting with a screen. I actually have the time and space and requirement to go talk to another human and ideate and envision the future and figure out bigger problems. And all of a sudden that opens up the space, in my opinion, for us to be talking about really meaningful social issues at work. How do I better my marriage? How do I interact with my colleagues in a respectful manner because my workplace is so different than my hometown that I grew up? Yeah. yeah, You know, like these things that were challenged by, but previously we didn't have to worry about it because it was swept under the rug. It wasn't as important as these other skills. Now that technology is advanced or taken away some of that uh, time in our workday, it actually, thank goodness, it gives us the time to focus on interpersonal skills. and So like more humanness, more human connection, more human experience, because we're not doing as many monotonous yeah details and we saw this in the industrial revolution like the first wave was you just need to stand on this line and hammer this bolt and then machines took over and people had to learn how to be in communication in factories and how do we innovate and how do we make our systems and processes even more efficient but it's not about making a person more efficient it's about making a system more efficient When you think about that, that changes the whole perspective. Yeah. You know, that it's not like an individual skill so much as a, what skills are going to collectively move us forward. Mm -hmm. I would, I would argue that companies that have employees that know how to create thriving relationships will be thriving companies. You know, it's like, it's, but the thing is, is it's, it's not a no brainer. Like you, you can, it's simple to understand though, that it's like, yes. Oh, so you're saying that if my employees go through less breakups and divorces, not to say that those are bad things, but they're hard on the human system, yeah. um, that if they don't experience as much conflict in their home, 
they'll be better workers. Yes. No. I mean, fuck is have all these people making the decisions not gone through a breakup? Yeah. But that's where we like used to disassociate at work. Yeah. But now, I mean, people are going into their workplaces wholeheartedly. Yeah. And and companies in your I mean, I haven't been in a company now in a bit, and I certainly was in not a progressive <laughs> up to date. Like I I remember when tech was coming out with like fucking ping pong tables and shit. Yeah. I was sitting, you know, I was working from home, but I when I go to a head office, I was like, oh, yawn. Like, this yeah. is, people are playing ping pong right now. Yeah. I got like a Keurig coffee maker. That's like the most excited. I was excited about a free <laughs> pod of coffee. They're like drinking beer on tap and kombucha and shit. Yeah. It's a different place. Well, you know, I think I will always be grateful for one of my staff members from a team of yesteryears. She was a new mom. And she was coming to work one day and she was a little flustered and she's like, yeah, my daughter's just not doing well right now. Uh, We took her to daycare. I don't know if she's going to like develop a fever, like something's going on. And that day we had a meeting scheduled for 4.30 and it was with some key partners on a project we were working on. And she comes over to my desk at four o'clock. She's like, daycare called, my kid's sick. I got to go pick up like my kid. I'm not going to make the meeting. And I looked at her, I was like, but like, this is an important meeting. And she looked back at me and goes, I have a small human that requires me to live. You determine what's more important. And I was like, hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, like very human good. life <laughs> yeah. or a project for a yeah, company. Yeah. Like it, and in my head, like the, that was such a momentous moment because it, it challenged my previous belief system. And it challenged like what I thought was normal or workable. Because I had a lens of this is what works for the company versus this is what works for humans. Mm. Like, how do we put humans first? Because they're the ones who drive the company forward anyway. You know, like it's, it really was a a moment where I was like, okay, right. Like you have a small human. (laughs) That actually is, needs to live. Yeah. After (laughs) this project might survive. Yeah. Like if I don't send this email in the next hour, everything's going to be okay. If you don't pick up your kid in the next hour, things may not be okay. You know, I remember watching a TEDx talk from, uh, maybe it was a TED talk, but it was from a guy. uh, You're probably familiar with it, but he talked about work-life balance. And then he says, if you don't design your life, someone else will do it for you. Mm -hmm. And you might not like what they come up with. Good one. Yeah. And he says, um, if there's two things that every company could get rid of, it would be managers and meetings. Mm but I, he didn't mean all managers, but he did mean meetings. Cause he's like, how many meetings do we just have? Cause they're on the calendar. And he's like, he studies work productivity, workplace productivity. Mm-hmm. And he said, if you ask someone where they're most productive, they almost never say work. Mm-hmm. They usually say like sitting at the kitchen table with a glass of wine or like, mm-hmm. and I'm like, that is true that often um, former workplaces were not productive places. Mm-hmm. You know, like open door policy. No, don't. He said that when companies started to implement, like, don't talk to me Tuesdays, that their productivity would go up because people weren't like having, you know, social conversations, which does conflict with other research to say that small talk actually contributes to a really highly productive workplace. What we're also seeing now is the research that comes out to say, like, open offices are actually the worst thing that could have happened to corporate culture because it actually increases the level of distraction it decreases the level of confidentiality it like ruins our ability and so this praised form of creating office like spaces, radical amazing they're like open. look at how cool google's office is it's all open <laughs> office and then we realize oh crap like this isn't actually working for Did us google bring in wall builders after they got that research well, they're I'm like just we're gonna need a bunch of walls yeah and offices i think they i've been to the google office in new york and I will say that their cubicle walls are much larger than <laughs> other offices. Like, you know, when you can like look across a room and you can yeah. see the eyes of everyone, like that's not what it is like. I was I just found that felt weird. It felt like I was in a, like uh, an ant, you know, like in a, a beehive, you Yeah, know? everyone's working around hustling, looking at each other. Like, it's just weird. Yeah. And I can hear every single conversation that ha- is happening. That's just like, and so why do people feel more productive at their kitchen table? Because they can actually get work done without someone peering over their shoulder, listening into the conversation, like interrupting them with small talk. Well, I suppose this is why so many workplaces are doing work from home. Yeah. You know, where you're, you can work one, two, three days a week from home. 
I, I mean, I personally have a couple of employees that they don't even live in the same place as me. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't monitor them. I don't, I mean, I have no interest in monitoring someone. I mean, to me, it's like, if I have to monitor you, we're already down a real, I don't even, no, I don't even want to be part of that sort of relational yeah. experience in the interest of time. I did want to, uh, I know that you get a little fired up about the word transformation. Oh yeah. And so, uh, I do want to, I want to touch on that cause I think it's really important. It's like, um, no matter what kind of work we're doing, whether it's wanting to be better at a certain thing in our workplace or be better at relationships versus be better at drawing, mm-hmm. um, the word transformation comes in a lot of like, what does it actually mean and how do we actually do it? So why does the word get you a little spicy? Yeah, spicy. <laughs> crunchy. Crunchy. Yeah, yeah, crunchy. It's different because I get so excited by it versus like I'm impassioned um, by the word transformation. Well, you and your sister, I mean, like, uh, I don't want to throw out a free testimonial here, but these two are like, for anyone listening, they're the most contagious two humans. Like <laughs> you two together are, it's if you weren't brother and sister and there was like a coconut, I would have, you know, and you're both like, into hey, the same you thing. To, I'd yeah. be like, yo, you need to meet. And you'd be like, thanks for the intro to my sister. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you hit, you missed the mark on so many spots right there. <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah. Many. <laughs> the, the reason I get spicy around transformation is because it's become a new buzzword and it's uh, decreased the value of what I would call transformational moments. Hmm how to define transformation. Transformation it has now become synonymous with uh, memorable or uh, impactful or um, a fun experience. And transformation to me, I look at both from a mathematical and scientific sense. And the easiest example would be like caterpillar butterfly, the way a caterpillar operates, the things a caterpillar eats, the way it moves about the world is completely different than a butterfly. Yeah. And so like things are the way they are until they're not transformation. And what I'm curious about, because now I'm like, okay, why do I get so spicy when I see this conference is transformational or like this transform my life? I'm like, Oh, I roll. I'm going back in my words that I've used at a conference. I'm like, did I ever say transformation? Probably. I probably did. I use it all the time too. And so I'm like reflecting on my own practice here. Um, So it's not just pointing the finger pretending like I'm high and mighty. I'm like, man, I do this too. And so I want to be more intentional with the language. So what is a transformational experience then? Yeah. And what's fascinating to me is we'll talk one of the things that I continue to hear is transformational is like, I read this book and it transformed my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Great. Yeah, I've definitely heard that. Then you give that same book to someone else and they're like, yeah, it was a good read. <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't actually the book that was transformational. Something else impacted it. So I'm like, okay, curious. Then I think of, okay, lots of parents say having a kid was a transformational experience. They're like, my life was transformed. But do they say the same thing about the second kid? Oh, that's actually really, (laughs) I'm the third kid. So fucking by the time then they're like, like, I got this, Yeah, you know, not as transformational as the first. So like not arguing that like having your second kid isn't transformational. I don't know necessarily. But there's certain all the second kids in the world. Well done. I know. I'm no. so sorry. I'm the third kid. So yeah, sorry. we're well done. Yeah. Yay. yeah. <laughs> the middle child is always so upset. <laughs> sorry, Steph. <laughs> um, but what I recognize is <laughs> the conditions around that experience are unique. The conditions around a transformational experience are unique. And that's why it's called the transformational experience. So what composes the transformational experience? Welcome Are you to about the, to tell me? No, this is the research that oh. I'm curious about. I have my hypotheses. Share. What's your hypothesis? Are you, you holding know, on? You know what? Podcast number two. <laughs> That's a good call. Mainly because I think that depending on the type of transformation, the conditions may actually be different. Um, when well, we're sort of like right time, right teacher, right moment, right master, whatever. I was yeah. just trying to come up with more moment master, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> well, I look at things. What's interesting to me is that transformation is often looked at from a very like whitewashed lens. And we don't actually look at it from a traumatic experience either. Um, what do you mean? 
9-11 in New York really impacted and dare I say, transformed people's lives in New York. Mm-hmm. And true, it impacted and changed the perspective of people around the world. But would people look back and be like, 9-11 transformed my life? Probably not. Probably not. Yeah. So was 9-11 a Unless transformational immediately, experience? Yeah. So oh, does the immediacy of it matter? Does the uh, personal exposure matter? Yeah. Is it a time-based thing versus a, a man, I, I don't even know, versus time? Would it be um, like the caterpillar takes a long time to turn into the butterfly? Yeah. But, you know, if you look at evolution, is evolution considered transformation well, then? You and, know, like. Yeah. And then you look at the opposite. Uh, in mm. an instant, I get into a car accident and lose my legs. Was that car accident a transformational experience? Something transformed. Yeah. That's for sure. And it wasn't in the positive sense. So this is where it's like transformation can often be like, I went to, like, I traveled around the world and I came back transformed. It's like always communicated as a positive thing. And so what I want to do and what I'm doing in the research is also looking at like, where's transformation held in like, in a traumatic experience as well. Mm, that's going to be interesting. Like the research on post-traumatic growth versus tra- post-traumatic stress disorder, yeah. like just those differences that you can experience your friend dying beside you on a battlefield and it can be what haunts you mm-hmm. or it could be what teaches you to hold on to friendships and to communicate and to, you know, it can be an expansive experience. But if you don't know if post-traumatic growth even exists, you might not even know it's an opportunity. And do you need to know that it, it exists in order for you to be the recipient of it or yeah. benefit from it? Well, it's fascinating because it's like, when does knowledge and wisdom meet opportunity? And, you yeah. know, it's kind of like, you know, luck is mm-hmm. what, when preparation meets the opportunity. I think yeah. that's, that's and what lucky people say. <laughs> <laughs> the interesting thing there is like, the role of language in those transformational moments. If I have language to identify it, does that help? And so I look at um, in the queer community, the act of coming out to be able to say like, I am insert sexual preference or, or gender identity here um, is really for some people, a transformational experience coming out to the parents has been noted as like a transformational moment. And is that because they now have language to better identify or, to communicate who they are. That it's like healing, but it's not yeah. always healing. That's not right? always like, healing. I've, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm straight, but I, it would be interesting. You know, I don't have to come out to my parents as yeah. straight. It's just like a birthright to be a heterosexual, yeah. which uh, there's so it's many. Kind of a privilege. Yeah. Not necessarily a birthright. Yeah, but I meant like, well, it's like being white too, you know. It's like yeah. I'm a white straight male. I pretty much have all the, what is seen as birthrights, yeah. you know, to, to advantage, yeah. to privilege. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that it can, you know, like it, it can be such a devastating experience. You're right. Yeah. Transformative in that, like, finally you give birth to your authentic self. Yeah. Um, so here's all like, here's just like, that's like the taste test of some of the hypotheses that I play with. And I'm fascinated to learn more about that. Yeah. The, um, cause it's intersectional. That's the beautiful thing is it's not depending on the experience different experiences can transform like the book can be a transformational experience, but there's conditions around that book that allow it for the reader to be a transformational experience. Yeah. I wonder what the pre-existing sort of, it'd be interesting once you collect all the data on mm-hmm. what is required and what is the pre-state I mean, it's pretty hard to, I guess people can objectively see what they needed before they found it, which is nice. It's, you can connect the dots much better when you're actually in the pre-transformation state, you're drinking a tequila. You're like, "Uh you don't have the book yet. So you haven't had the transformation. Exactly. In the work, uh, I know in some research that they did on heart disease patients, they saw that when you get a stent, like a, a little a thing that expands your artery if mm-hmm. you have a heart attack. Um, when you get a stent put in, only about 10% of people are compliant after two years. Only 10% of people change their life after they almost die. Wow. Which is crazy. Yeah. And of all the things that cause uh, heart disease, um, the majority of them are actually preventable. Yes. But yet we don't do anything to prevent them despite we almost died on a table 
which is crazy because what you hear people always say is like, if you're going to die, you'll fight to live. Yeah. But this evidence shows that that's actually not true. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's interesting to see what actually motivates change, but what actually is the container for transformation? Yeah. Why do those 10% actually still change? Yeah. And the interesting thing is for me, I also think of like the rhetoric around, you have to hit rock bottom in order to yeah. transform. And it's like people almost die and still don't do anything about it. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're still smoking as they're on the oxygen machine Yeah, and they can blow up. Like it's insane, <laughs> you know, and it's, that's true because I, I mean, you don't quit smoking. It doesn't take you two years. Mm -hmm. It takes you the moment that you decide mm -hmm. just like it doesn't, it, it just, you don't have to hit rock bottom, but for some reason as humans, we're a real resilient bunch. We really like to get a couple two by fours to the head from the universe. I wouldn't even say that we're really resilient in that case. I would say that we're really used to punishment. <laughs> we have been yeah, conditioned to be punished, to suffer, to suffer. We have a negativity bias that's inherent we also are surrounded by media and rhetoric that tells you you're not good enough, that you aren't pretty enough, you're too young, you're too old, your body isn't correct, your sexual orientation isn't correct, your choice of profession is not going to generate the income that you oh, need. Yeah. You know, like, like there's so much telling you, like, you're bad, you're wrong, you're never going to be good enough. And so it's... Here's some drugs yeah. to help that. Yeah, and we also have alcohol. <laughs> yeah, we have alcohol and we have dating sites and escapism. <laughs> yeah. We have tons of ways. Yeah. And so the beautiful thing in that is that there is a level of resilience, but I would say we're a sucker for punishment. Aren't we ever? Yeah. And you don't got to wait for the bottom to rise. Amen. You can actually change at the top. You don't make the good great, you yeah. know? Well, my man, holy cow. Podcast number two, guys, we're <laughs> going to hear about transformation up in the next level. Dude, I appreciate you. Thank you for coming on and uh joining me here i'm obviously one of your greatest fans Ditto, you know buddy. That. and um where can people find you and 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 your, your corker co yeah uh instagram at the corker co um the corker company.com or me personally at matt underscore corker and do you have a matt corker.com yeah it's i would call it a little outdated it's yeah. not as exciting. <laughs> Fair enough. The Corker, Corker Co. Co is really the Corker where, Co. Go there. Be. Okay. Anything upcoming people should know about? What's upcoming? We have uh, for the May long weekend. We're partnering with Movement One Hundred Eight hmm. um, to do a weekend retreat in Mount Baker. And oh, Mount Baker's delicious. Yeah. So we're taking a group of people out to actually have a weekend of leisure. We call it AWOL. <laughs> That's <laughs> so awesome. Let's go AWOL and actually have a enjoyable experience away rather than a stressful experience away. Yeah. And uh, June 8th, we're hosting the ninth edition of Disrupt HRYVR. Oh, that event is so fun. Everybody, I got to speak at it once. It is like, it's, it's exactly what its name yeah. entails, which is like, what are the disruptive thoughts to human resources and people? And yeah, it's essentially, we were just talking about it today of these, we gather the people in Vancouver who want to think differently about leading the future of work, the future of people, and the future of technology. What are the ideas you need to know in the greater Vancouver area? Awesome. So make sure you guys check that out. Yeah. The AWOL, what will you guys, I know it's a weekend of leisure. Yeah. Amazing acronym use. <laughs> uh, what is sort of like the focus? I know Movement 108 is a really awesome fitness space. Yeah. Um, but what will be sort of the, the our premise is we often go away for a weekend and then need a holiday from our holiday. <laughs> so we're essentially jam packing in all of the things that you want to do during your week, but don't make time for. Ah. So it's actual scheduled downtime to go outside, to meditate, to move your body, to sweat and laugh with friends, to do something that challenges your mind. And it's a very, um, we did it last year and it was so successful that we were like, oh, we should actually do this again and invite some cool people out. So um, Baker is such a beautiful space. Yeah. So they can find that on the Corker Co. You know it. Dot com. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Thanks, brother. Thank you. 
Also, if you have not, it is so helpful for me if you go to wherever you listen to this podcast and you give it a five-star review and leave a written review. The written reviews are incredibly helpful. And if you could share any episodes that have really resonated with you on your platforms, with your friends, all of those things just go a really long way in helping other people build their relationships and find something they didn't even know they needed. And so it is incredibly supportive for me. If you can go do that, that is just something in exchange that I ask for all the effort and time that I put in to all of my platforms. And I'm just so incredibly grateful that as you spend your time, you are spending it with me. That is such an honor, as I know time is the most important resource we have. So thank you. And please go to your platform and hook me up with a review. So thankful.